You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is episode 116 of Retired Racehorse Radio on the Horse Radio Network, part of Equine Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products and Cashel Company. Retired Racehorse Radio is your guide to the adoption, care, and training of the retired racehorse. Brought to you in cooperation with the Retired Racehorse Project and New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program. In today's show, we chat with Ryan Fleetwood about why he chooses to incorporate thoroughbred bloodlines into his quarter horse breeding program. We then learn all about equine insurance from Amy Dom of Broadstone Equine Insurance. Last but never least, we speak with Leandra Cooper from New Vocations Adoption Program and get our training tip and introduce you to our adoptable horse of the week. Stay tuned. And they're off on Retired Racehorse Radio, the podcast that is your guide to the adoption, care, and training of the retired racehorse. This is Joy Orr in Detroit, Michigan. And this is Kristen Kovach-Bentley in Jamestown, New York, and you're listening to Retired Racehorse Radio. Kristen, I I feel so bad. I'm just going to be really transparent with listeners. If I'm not my normal, bubbly, super extroverted self. It is because I am sick, but that's okay. I'm so excited to be here because I did miss you and I'm always excited to talk about retired racehorses. Oh, well, I'm going to send you good vibes over the airwaves and hope that we're recording this like way in advance of Thanksgiving. I hope whatever this is, it is out of your system by Thanksgiving. It so better be. Enjoy the holiday. <laughs> I'm sure you'll see it as content if not. <laughs> Ooh, no, we don't want to see that as content. Yikes. Well, I'm no, I'm just show kidding. you everything. Probably just me in a hospital. <laughs> No, gosh. Oh, gosh. Okay, fine. Get all that out of like yeah. We'll make it into fun. the world. Yeah, I'll probably harass a nurse or something, so it's fine. <laughs> Here's Joy with an interview with this nurse who knows nothing about horses. <laughs> if I was a horse, how would you? Okay. So um, yes, it's post Thanksgiving when you all are listening to this. We hope you had a lovely day. Um, hopefully, we are equally stuffed full of food. Although Joy probably doesn't want me to talk about food right now, so that's fine. Not hundred percent, but listen, best. I'm always here for Thanksgiving dinner. Fun fact: I make it multiple times of the year. It is not solely for Thanksgiving because I love it that much. Correct. Anything with that many sides. It's an all year thing. Year. It's yeah. all year thing. <laughs> So, Joy, you had uh, a recent fun addition to your program. Uh, Tell us about that special delivery, because I think that was happening when we were recording last time. It was literally happening last time we were recording. I had to like pause and have Kristen take over a lot of things because I was talking to the hauler and there was a lot going on. Then I had to hurry out of my house and drive up to the barn because my student got her first thoroughbred. Yay! I'm so excited. Uh, Her name is Millie. And yes, she is a chestnut mare. Off Perfect. The track thoroughbred. Although she did not race, she was very slow. We did not go to race training very long, um, but she is an absolute sweetheart. Very cute. Um, we got to try her in Kentucky during the thoroughbred makeover, and super, super thankful for Mareworthy Charities because they were the ones who actually pinged her. She's part of the Mareworthy um, Connections, so that worked out well. Um, it's very fortunate sale is kind of the best case scenario where the owner actually did not want to sell her. It was unfortunate circumstances in her life that came up and uh, she was looking for the perfect home and 
really thoroughly interviewed me, interviewed the parents of my student, interviewed her, and actually spent some time with us at the makeover, um, which I love that type of investment because it really shows how much the horse meant to her and that she was looking out for the horse's best interest, which is what we really promote on this show. So I'm really thankful to her. Her name is Judy. Really thankful for her for trusting us with her lovely horse, who she bred herself. And fun fact, Judy actually bred a Kentucky Derby winner. Uh, Mine That Bird was one of the horses she bred. Whoa. Yeah. So she is very prevalent in the racing world. She had a very fun career. I hope to bring her as a guest on the show. She's just about to say, yeah, fascinating uh, people (laughs) I've ever met, but I know she's kind of in a time of morning uh millie coming into our lives but we we text almost every day which has been fun also huge shout out to the hauling group that we use so pony express feed and transport of michigan if you are looking to haul a horse they go all around the country but mandy's fantastic she hauled my horses for me when i was moving across the state and i asked for this nice favor from her to haul this horse from kentucky one of the kindest humans ever like my horse hates trailer loading, Kristen, and she was so patient with her, and that goes a long way with me. So if you are getting your own horse, if you are Christmas shopping, it's this is not sponsored in any way, but I do highly recommend Pony Express Feed and Transport of Michigan if you're nice. looking for a fantastic safe hauler. But Millie's settling in. Uh, she's already in her ridden work, and she loves her job, and she's already loving her kids. So that's good, too. Oh, perfect. Yes. Natural in heaven. Yes. Go chestnuts. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yes. How about okay. you? I know you're, you just got done. Well, you have it yet. At this time, you're plotting your Thanksgiving dinner. I'm hoping it all goes well for you. What about your barn time? Because Thanksgiving dinner is very time consuming, Kristen. It How is actually. Getting we've time got for your it, horses? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've got it worked out because what's going to happen is we're doing all the cooking at Eric's mom's house. Um, she wants okay. to host, but she doesn't cook. So we'll do the cooking. So we take everything down. Eric bought a knife roll for his knives so he can have you know his knives there. Um, and then I think we're going to max out on oven space. So I've got this worked out that when I go to feed the horses, I will take with me a pan of potatoes and go next door to my sister-in-law's house, uh, put them in her oven, do my horse chores, and then hopefully pick up the cooked potatoes and take them back to the house. So it's a little bit of finagling, but we've got it worked out. (laughs) I think it's great. And I really hope you make some sort of post about it. I think it'd be a very fun thing to watch you. Yeah. I think it'll be a fun race. Yeah. To see like who finishes first, the potatoes or me doing the barn chores. So yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. So do you remember when you came to visit me and you watched me attempt to like, just do a stretch casually. And I was like, Oh, look, I can like just reach my knees. And you were like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, do yoga. What's wrong with you? Have you started yoga? Uh, No, but Jabber got a massage (laughs) on Monday and he loved it. Same (laughs) thing. And I, the same day did something weird to my back and I couldn't like, if I sit in a chair, I can't quite turn all the way to one side or the other okay Uh, but jobber got a massage so he's doing great he loved his massage good good i feel like jobber's really getting his downtime right now um we'll talk about your self-care after the show (laughs) i really feel yeah but but jobber jobber got a great massage you guys yeah i know you wanted to give him some time off and wes is getting his time to shine this winter Yes, although it was almost 60 degrees today and i do confess that i did hop on jobber for one i don't think there's anything wrong with that I know. I just, I always set these weird rules for myself where I'm like, you are off. And then I'm like, he doesn't know what day it is. Yeah. He doesn't care. And he was very (laughs) happy to go. So the massage did him plenty of good. He offered a trot 
And so we just went on a nice long trot across the cow pasture. And I yeah, he feels that. he feels great. But yeah, uh, it'll go back to work in Wes, which Wes does not enjoy. So that's because he wants to do dressage. He might. I don't your, know. In like a stride and a half, you're going to be right across that arena, man. I love it. <laughs> Extend all day. Send him my way. <laughs> he is a fun little potato. So no, he's he going to have good. a good winner. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I actually it. I have an update to share with uh, with Winnie next time she's on because I've been taking some of her advice with Wes and he's really coming along. So I'll have oh, to let her nice. know. And I've been video. taking a lot of uh, or going back through some of our history logs from last year. We talked about winter training and kind of going back to my ABCs that Leandra talked to us about a couple episodes, actually. So Astrid's been I've been calling it rehab riding. She's not actually in rehab, but just working on her flexibility and stamina and being like very particular about the movements we're actually doing and getting more concise, if you will. And I've already noticed a really big improvement on a lot of the things that like knocked us down in our points before. So I love that. Yes. I'm telling you, you know, I know that we're always like, ah, winter sucks. Yeah, the days are so short, but this is the time that you can have so much more productivity, I think, mm-hmm. because you tend to work in shorter sessions more frequently. And I think that that's just better for like, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in the winter that we could probably apply to our summer riding. Yeah. Just don't. I mean, <laughs> so. I've been doing so many walk rides, but the flexibility, um, also got to do another shameless plug who we're not sponsored by, but I really like this app right now. It's called the pole work patterns by fancy footwork equestrian. And it was like a dollar 99 on Apple, but it will design pole grids for you. So if you have access to poles or that's on your Christmas list, whatever it is, I recommend it. You can pick it by number. It will randomize it for you, or you can pick like specialized, like you want to focus on bending or rhythm or flexibility and you can get some suggestions. So when you get into a brain fart, like I do sometimes, uh, it's been a very helpful tool. That sounds like perfect for January when you're kind of like, you want to hit the ground running in the new year, but you're like, I don't know what to do. Yes. And Pinterest has a bunch of free versions. So like, I'm just like throwing out all my, my tips and tricks, but yeah, Pinterest, there's a big collection of things on there too. So love that. Yes. But before we talk and like spoil all the good things, you also get a lot of tips and tricks here on Retired Resource Radio. And Leandra is actually joining us today. So she'll be sure to bring you a training tip. But before that, you're going to hear from our premier sponsor, Kentucky Performance Products. Frequently Asked Questions, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products. Question, my friend was telling me that supplementing with omega-3 fatty acids decreased the level of inflammation in horses with arthritis. Is this true? Answer, yes. There have been several peer-reviewed studies that have shown that supplementation with the omega-3 fatty acids known as EPA and DHA will help support healthy levels of inflammation in the joints. The best source of EPA and DHA is fish oil. We often recommend adding a high-quality omega-3 fatty acid supplement, such as Kentucky Performance Products, contribute to the diet of horses who struggle with joint pain and stiffness. A KPP customer named Sarah recently posted a review sharing her experience with Contribute. She wrote, I recently swapped my Western dressage and cow horses over to the Joint Armor and Contribute. Astonishing results! My horses are moving beautifully with more impulsion and suspension in their gates. You can learn more about Contribute and omega 3 fatty acids EPA and DHA at kppusa.com. 
Got questions about your feeding program? We can help. Email Karen at questions at kppusa.com or call us at 859-873-2974. Joy, I'm very excited to introduce our next guest, who is Ryan Fleetwood. I had a really cool conversation with Ryan in the spring when I was writing an article for our Off-Track Thoroughbred magazine, which is the uh, print production of the Retired Racehorse Project. Um, Ryan is a breeder of quarter horses up in Alberta. Um, He has earned the Canadian Remuda of the Year Award, which I think is very cool, uh, and is on the AQHA Board of Directors. And if this sounds like an odd guest for us to put on Retired Racehorse Radio, uh, what we're getting at is that Ryan is breeding some thoroughbred blood into his program, um, which I thought was very cool and in kind of the similar vein as our conversation with Chris Benning's last episode about how he's using thoroughbred blood in his warm blood program. We wanted to take things from the quarter horse side and speak to some breeders. So we're super excited to have Ryan with us tonight. So Ryan, welcome to Retired Racehorse Radio. Thank you. I appreciate being asked to be here. Yeah. So, I mean, you and I had such, or at least I did, hopefully you did as well. Hopefully you enjoyed our conversation (laughs) in the spring when we were chatting for the magazine. Um, And one thing that I think is just really cool, and I'm going to like put this out right at the top of the segment. If you guys are like just interested in breeding theory and like how people make decisions to breed horses, you've got to go follow Ryan on uh, Facebook at his Fleetwood Farms. What is it? Fleetwood Farms Quarter Horse? Is that yes, the name of your right. page? Yeah, yeah. Because just the stuff that you're putting out is like, it to me as a person who does not breed horses, I'm like, this is what horse breeding should be. <laughs> it's like reading the writings that you're putting out, you know, and your musings and your observations on on the industry and how you're making decisions. It's just like it's just good horse sense. So, um, yeah. So that's my commercial for you right off the bat. <laughs> yes, thank you. I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> So you've obviously like you've been breeding like top tier quarter horses for a long time. Um, And if I remember correctly, that's your Fleetwood Farms is a family operation, right? Like it's on a couple generations now. It it is. In fact, we are raising the fifth generation in the same house on the same land, uh, you know, on this place. So I am really a fortunate man to be able to say things like that. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. Yeah. And as someone who is not from a family like that, that sounds amazing. (laughs) That's very (laughs) cool. Um, So, you know, kind of going back and looking at the quarter horse as a breed, you know, like if you go way back in the history of the quarter horse, a lot of those horses came from thoroughbred blood originally. And of course, the thoroughbred back in those days was a different breed from what it looks like today. But that, you know, all that thoroughbred blood was a pretty big early influence on the foundations of the quarter horse and kind of like where that breed started and where it's going. Um, So at this point, they've kind of developed, you know, in their own essentially completely separate tracks. So tell us a little bit about your program, like what you're looking for in quarter horses and why you are, you know, not afraid to bring a little thoroughbred blood back into that breed again. Gosh, Kristen, that's a big question right off the bat. <laughs> Just give us your history of the world in five no, minutes. Nothing, you know, go, nothing like easing fine. into it. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, very blunt. I just go right in there. <laughs> I, I, no, it's a great question. And you're right. The The thoroughbred has been uh, has been paramount in the development of the quarter horse. The quarter horse really is a relatively new breed, certainly, especially in relative terms when you compare it to you know, the thoroughbred or uh, the Arabian or, or anything like that. And so, yes, the, the thoroughbred 
was one of the breeds that was used in the development of the quarter horse. And I think if you took it out, it would entirely change the look of the breed right from the front to the back. Uh, and every discipline in between would entirely change. So, you know, at this point, the AQHA, the only breed that they will allow to outcross and come in is the thoroughbred. Uh, and for me, when we look at the things that we want to do with a horse and in virtually any use or any discipline, you're looking for speed. And I'm not talking necessarily just about speed down the track, like you might think of as the you know typical use of a thoroughbred, but to perform maneuvers at speed. And that speed may be controlled in a, some kind of educated, controlled, concise movement. But speed equals athleticism, at least in large part in, in my mind. And so where better if we're going and looking to bring speed into our breed or our my breeding program, for example, than to go right to the source, which is a thoroughbred. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and that makes like even like, you know, changing like the break over a horse's foot is speed, you know, and in, in the horse getting its foot off the ground faster. So that's interesting to think of it that way, like not like straight running speed, you know, but <laughs> speed in maneuvers and speed in in everything else. So very cool. Yes. Um yes. So okay, so that's interesting to think of the thoroughbred bringing that particular quality, you know, because I think when people are thinking about breeding, they tend to be like, oh, the thoroughbred would bring like finer bone and you know lighten this and change that, and they're speaking purely confirmationally. So, you know, is there anything coming in confirmation wise with the thoroughbred that you're looking for or looking to not bring in? We can look at it the other way too. Oh, definitely, and I mean that's probably the second part of the conversation. I, I guess. Um maybe I'll backtrack just a little bit in that for me, uh, absolutely at the forefront and paramount and of the highest importance in my breeding program is disposition. That's mm -hmm. number one. Mm -hmm. And it must remain. So, you know, there's really, there's so many important things about horses and, and about how we create them that they could almost be put on the same level. However, disposition, you know, which includes trainability and just the, the uh, characteristics of that horse and how it reacts, how it processes, etc. That is above all else. So that's the first thing. Yes, confirmation is second. And, and I have lots of things to say about confirmation, you know, as a as a quarter horse breeder and someone who's primarily interested in kind of the, let's say the Western working horse. So I'm uh, covering, you know, cowboys on ranches all the way to the competitive show horse that's shown in, in any Western discipline. Uh, those horses, in my opinion, in general, okay, and you know, on a general term, you can look at those horses, and typically, at least by my eye, they certainly could use uh, a resurgence of some height, of some length of neck, 
an improvement in the shoulder and pastern angle, uh, you know, a longer underline, a shorter top line, and the ability to just reach forward and cover ground and move out. Uh, in lots of cases in quarter horses, we we could use uh, cleaning up of the front end, you know, where the, the front end doesn't get uh, quite as wide as what the hind end might be. Uh, and giving that horse the ability to get over and around itself easier and quicker, going back to that, you know, definition of athleticism uh, equals speed that we talked about earlier. Uh, and then, you know, in that cleaning up the front end, you're, you're cleaning up the next set to where you've got, not only is it clean and comes out properly from the body, but then there's a, a really clean, tight throat latch also. Uh, so all of those kinds of things are the things that I'm looking for when I breed thoroughbred into my quarter horse program. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not necessarily after the 50% thoroughbred, but I sure like what I see in the 25 down to say 12 and a half percent, somewhere in that percentage of blood. Yeah. Well, right. And I mean, you've got to start with 50 to get to, <laughs> to get right. to those smaller percentages. So that makes sense. Yeah. Right. And yeah. 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 Well, and like, so I'm five foot 11. Joy is also tall. You're must be close to that joy, aren't you? But like, I know when I ride, you know, when I have ridden like, you know, a cutting type horse, I feel like I'm going to fly right over its head, <laughs> which is what's drawn me to a thoroughbred just to have something with a little more height to it, you know, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, the, the cow horse style quarter horses do seem to be kind of trending towards that a little bit downhill and quite low. So mm -hmm. Yeah, so I like a little height, and I think Joy does too. So yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I started in the Arab world, and very similar thing where they're breeding small. Well, now they're changing things where they're almost more like saddlebreds. And yes, come at me, I'm fine with it, listeners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they are bred traditionally; they were smaller, and so I was drawn to a thoroughbred for the height, being a taller person. But Ryan, I have a question for you, and it's very controversial. Um, sure. What I like about this conversation, and it parallels really well, we had a conversation in the spring with a breeder um, who used thoroughbreds into her sport horse breeding program for eventers. And very similarly, she liked not necessarily the 50%, but kind of that 25 to 15%. There's a sweet spot in there. Yes. Um, how well liked are you? In the quarter horse breeding world, <laughs> uh, that's a great question because one of the things I was going to say earlier that popped into my mind to add in is that I'm certain if there's, you know, quite competitive, kind of high end competitive quarter horse Western riders or people or breeders that are going to listen to your podcast they're mm -hmm. going to disagree with me absolutely because a, a number of them tell me that i'm absolutely crazy for adding mm -hmm. thoroughbred or that much thoroughbred into the breeding program H however when the only qualification for making breeding choices like happens so often in my breed is empirical evidence, okay? Earnings mm -hmm. of the stallion and his yeah. get, earnings of the mare and her get, 
Now let's breed them. When, when that happens, you start to lose things. And I think that we're seeing that happen in some cases in my breed. Uh, you know, when horses are so disciplined, specific bred, and when there is no acknowledgement of the breeding of horses is part science and it's part art form. Mm-hmm. It's not and can't be just based all on empirical evidence. It's the wrong way to do it. Uh, so to answer your question, yes, in some cases, I certainly, uh, you know, as you can tell, I'm not really shy of sharing my thoughts and, and Oh, I love it. Things. I'm here to be controversial. Why do you think <laughs> we started this podcast? <laughs> I was just thinking, I was like, Ryan, I think you've hit the nail on the head for yeah. what might be wrong in multiple breeds. Well, that's what I was going to, my follow-up <laughs> question to that is a lot of times in the disciplines you see quarter horses and even Arabians, I'll bring them into the mix because I don't think they're far off either, is you kind of get the performance bred horses, the ones who are, whether they're Western, they're English, they're jumping, they're whatever they're doing, and then you get the halter bred. And we've had it many times, even in our other disciplines, eventing dressage, where warm bloods are kind of running the show. You know, people wonder if you throw the thoroughbred in, are are you taking away the chances of winning? Which I like to look at it as if you add the thoroughbred in, are you bettering that horse's chance at a stronger confirmation to perform longer, to stick to the roots of the breed? And my, my question for you is, do you? agree with that statement? Do you think we should get away from breeding this aesthetic look and more so think about the longevity of the horse? Or do you do you think there's more to it? Is that too simplified? I don't know if it's too simplified. It may be that there's kind of two different parts, at least in my mind, to answer your question. And one would be addressing, you know, the like halter horses in general and how they're supposed to be a breed standard. Uh, and the other part to that would be breeders and, and how they make their decisions. And, you know, within the quarter horse breed, there's, there's so many different levels. There's so many different echelons and, and I'm, I don't function inside of breeding horses that are meant solely for the purpose of taking and showing. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not, I'm not breeding horses that, that sell for a gazillion dollars and are going to see the, the show pen. I am focused more on a horse that's made for the everyday man or everyday woman who wants to have a very uh, agreeable, pretty, functional, sound partner to go do things with all sorts of things, not just one thing. And mm-hmm. part of the reason for that joy is because when you look at the AQHA's own numbers, there's approximately 12 to 15% of people involved in that registry who ever set foot through the doors of a competition ring. Hmm. And so <laughs> as a as a breeder, it is insanity for me to consider just um, um, pursuing performance horse customers. That I is love a that. wild statistic, actually. Yeah. Like, I wish we knew that with off-track thoroughbreds, like where they're going. 
like, you know, we champion like, oh, go out and show them. But like, there's a lot of people who don't show them. And a lot still of people enjoy don't them. show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a, I mean, that could go for period. any breed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would I would venture to take the educated guess that the numbers would be similar uh, across the board. Hmm, that is fascinating. That, that is, is fascinating. It's like a deep thought of the night. And I'm like, oh, going to think about that for a while. I know. Well, speaking <laughs> of also other thoughts, um, listeners, I'm well aware we're not putting thoroughbreds into Arabian bloodlines. Please do not come at me in my Instagram or my email. It was just an example. <laughs> yeah, you're just speaking what you know. It's okay. Yes, that this is yeah. something you see across breeds of how do you stick to the history of them? And in quarter horses, there is a lot of thoroughbred that was bred into them at the start. Right. There and is. what I think is. is interesting, you know, and like in reading, you know, some of your posts and stuff, Ryan, you're not like, you're not breeding thoroughbred in to breed thoroughbred in. You're breeding in particular horses with the qualities that you like, right? Like you're not like, I'm going to go out and breed appendixes, uh, appendices. I'm not going to go out and breed appendix quarter horses. <laughs> you know, you are, you're going out with a very specific goal for what you want to see and like a long game in mind, right? Like right. as you mentioned, it's, mm -hmm. it's that maybe the next generation after your 50, 50. Um, and I think that's pretty key, right? Like, you know, obviously we're thoroughbred people. So we love to be like, oh yeah, cool. This guy's breeding thoroughbreds and his quarter horses, but that's yeah. not yeah. what you're doing you are refining the animal that you're producing, which I think is pretty Correct. key, but also Correct. like, you know, it is cool that that's how you're doing it. So mm -hmm. um, can you tell us about some of the specific, like either individual horses or just like lines or looks in general that you're bringing into your program? Yeah. Well, I think that for me, the first horse that I have to talk about who really made me take notice of what, attributes the thoroughbred was bringing to my quarter horse breeding program was a mare by the name of Rugged Ashley. And Rugged Ashley was by Rugged Lark. Rugged Lark uh, was, of course, 50% thoroughbred. And he was a two-time AQHA world super horse, which meant that he was a, a versatility horse and, you know, had competed and shown and I don't know whether either of you are aware of the horse Rugged Lark, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I got to intern with Lynn Palm briefly. So oh, yeah, I well, rode actually yes. a number of Rugged Lark offspring. Very, well, you know very what nice I'm horses. talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the attractiveness and and uh, the intelligence. I think that that's probably the you know one of the major things that stands about the Rugged Lark horses was their intelligence and really quiet, easy disposition. And so Rugged Ashley came to me from a friend uh, in, in the U.S. and came into our breeding program. And, and we started breeding her to our, you know, uh, shorter, wider, thicker foundation kind of stallions. And I'm telling you, every time she had a foal, she knocked it out of the park. I mean, these things mm. stood out. They were something every time. And I started looking at this mare going, this mare is 75% thoroughbred because her daddy was half and her mother was full thoroughbred. Hmm. Uh, and, and Rugged Lark, of course, had earned his registry of merit, which is what's required to graduate from an appendix horse to the regular registry in quarter horse, and thereby was able to breed thoroughbred mares, creating this Ashley mare who was 75% thoroughbred. 
and had quarter horse tapers. And so right off the bat, every foal she has on her merit alone is 37.5% thoroughbred. And so all of those confirmational things that I talked about earlier, they all had it. They had it in spades and they they absolutely stand out. Just the the class, the look of them, the aesthetics of them, when you look through everything, almost everyone would come back to those horses and go, wow, what is this? Hmm. And so even for a hard-headed guy like me, you know, it took a while, but I I figured it out. I figured out what it was and and what she was adding. And so that was kind of the beginning for me. Uh, and, you know, then for a while we had our own thoroughbred stallion. Um, I, I have uh, three daughters of Rugged Ashley that I have retained. Only one is old enough to be having a foal. She'll have her first foal next year. And then we also breed to a stallion that came up here from Kentucky by the name of Fed Biz, and he's a Giants Causeway. Uh, winner of 770 some thousand dollars on the track. I think Kristen, you and I probably talked about him, but just mm -hmm. one of the most absolutely unbelievably beautiful animals I have ever laid eyes on in any breed ever. Yeah, that's awesome. And those giants causeways are like that whole family that sire line is known for producing athletes so like yeah. very sought after in sport horses and now you know with giants causeway no longer being with us like a hot commodity so right I, right guys hang well, on uh, biz up there right i i can see why and yeah aren't we lucky in canada that we have this great thoroughbred breeder up here and highfield stock farm who brought this horse up and uh and has offered him to the industry up here so i am probably one of the only quarter horse breeders who is taking advantage of the fact that he's here but uh, yeah we have a i guess you know for any quarter horse people that are listening we have a two-year-old coming two-year-old filly by him and out of a daughter of Playgun, who is out of a daughter of gray's starlight and her distaff side is doc's hickory and just just a beautiful little quarter horse mare and so those tend to be the kind of mares that I take to the fed biz stallion or that I bred to the, the thoroughbred stallion that I owned. They're very, very typey. They're very much quarter horse because in my mind, I am using the thoroughbred to get to some of those things I talked about earlier, but I also want to pull that thoroughbred as far as I can into some kind of quarter horse style and look because that's what I do. That's what I'm breeding is quarter horses. Right. I love this look at this as a long game. I think like too often in the breeding industry, people are just hung up on like the immediate, you know, and it makes sense if you're promoting a stallion or you're, mm -hmm. you know, trying to sell your babies, like you're hung up on like what you're producing right now. Yeah. But I think this is like, this is what breeding should be, right? Like you are trying to breed a legacy and improve the breed, not just promote your stallion, sell your foals, right? Like, so this is fascinating. We could go on Thank all night. I love this. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I, that's how I look at it too. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that we talked about before was when you asked me, how long does it take to see either 
my success or failure in some of these decisions I make. And, and I honestly think that it's about a decade. Wow. Yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't take long before. So, you know, you produce a filly that you keep. And then the first time you breed her is at somewhere between three and five years old. And then it takes a year to get a foal and you rebreed her. And it takes another year to get another foal. And you start to see what those foals look like. And all of a sudden, you're 10 years past that decision. So, yes, it's a long game. I, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, I have this responsibility, not only to the breed as a whole, but to all these little lives that I create, every one of them. If they don't have inherent value right off the bat, to me, why would they to anyone else? Man, Ryan with the mic drop moments. Here. I know. It's <laughs> so good. <laughs> We're just gonna have Ryan like that's on for a whole should, episode. That yeah. should be what it's all about. And I, I mean, that's like probably where all... we should end this. Even though we could go forever, but like that's that's icing. That's, on uh, yeah, cake. I mean, that's that's really like <laughs> that's what horse breeding should be. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Ryan Fleetwood, you are horse breeder to the stars. So, geez, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. But you know, if you're going to be that good for my ego, I will be on all the time. Yeah, great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we are professional hype people. It's what we yeah, do. That's us. We're everyone's <laughs> biggest cheerleaders. So, Ryan, before we wrap completely, where can people learn more about your program and read your musings that I was promoting earlier? Where's a good place to find you on the internet? <laughs> Uh, Facebook is probably my primary place of residence on the internet. We have a page there called Fleetwood Farms Quarter Horses. And then just my own personal page is what sees a lot of my my own opinions because no one else wants to read them. So I just write them for myself. (laughs) <laughs> all right everybody follow along for your uh yeah your daily dose of wisdom about horse breeding and yeah see uh see what fleetwood farms is producing ryan thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insight this has been really really interesting we enjoyed this a lot great well thank you for asking i i really was honored that you asked me well, i'm here with tony from cashel you all know it from the ads you hear all the time on this show but i we're at the trade show and this is the point of time in the year where we find out what's new coming out. So what's Cash will have new coming out? Oh, we've got a a great lineup of uh, 32, 34 wool top pads. So describe them. Uh, Five different colors, real vibrant, bright, sharp looking pads. What what makes them different? Uh, Well, it's the fill. The, the, The wool felt on the inside is a natural felt. And the fleece on the bottom is a hundred percent merino. Oh, really? Okay. So these are soft and squishy pads. Well, not real squishy, but soft, and and they do absorb shock and and saddle fit. What would they retail for? What are those? That's you about a hundred and nineteen. That's the right price. Yeah. Anything else new with Cashel coming out? Oh, we've got uh, more saddle pads coming in the fall. A uh, new strap line coming in the fall. It's uh, a two tone that looks great with a, a great buckle set on it. There's, we're always in development, so there's so many things, projects in the works. What's still your most popular product? Is it still always the same things year after year? 
fly. You bet. Yeah, fly, fly that's what we all. That's, what, that's how I knew you in the first place was fly. Fly masks. Yep. Yeah, many years ago, uh, we were primarily fly masks and kind of had some tush cushions and a few odds and ends. Today, we've broadened that offering to saddlebags, uh, strap, head stalls, breast collars, bell boots, um, leg protection, and the, it continues to grow. Is there a place where somebody can go and see all the products? Uh, Cashelcompany.com will give you a good offering. There you go. Well, thank you, Tony. It's been fun seeing you again. Hey, thank you. Good to see you. Well, I'm super excited to introduce our next guest. We have Amy Dom on with us, and she is from Broadstone Equine. Amy is a horse girl through and through. She's been riding just about all the disciplines, I feel like, at such an early age. And she's continued to benefit the equine world by getting involved in the insurance aspects of it, which I have a lot of questions on, so I hope that this is a beneficial interview for all of our listeners and not just myself. So welcome to the show, Amy. Hi, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. I think with retired racehorses, I know a lot of people who are unsure if they should insure their horses, not insure. There's a lot of questions because their pricing is all over the place and their retraining Mm -hmm. is all over the place and their health can be all over the place. But before we dive into that, can we learn a little bit more about what equine insurance is? Sure. Um, so equine insurance is similar to, from the standpoint of what you're trying to accomplish to your house or your car. Basically, you're asking the insurance company to indemnify you. Basically, they take on, you pay them a certain amount of money for them to take on the risk in case something bad happens and then make you whole financially, you know, if that does happen. So same basic idea, you know, if you, you're insuring your car and you're in some sort of accident, you've got, you know, X amount of damage, um, you know, you've paid them a premium over time to God forbid that happens to help um, make you whole financially and, you know, repairing the car, replacing the car, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, basically same to a certain extent, same idea with horses, except we're not looking at just mortality, like a life insurance policy. We're also looking at, for most people, their biggest reason that they're looking to enter their horse is more for a med- veterinary issues, you know, medical, surgical things that come up along the way, um, which is a good priority to have. Because if you look at statistically, thankfully, we don't have a lot of horses die by a percentage. So our mortality loss ratio is basically the number of claims you have versus the you know amount of horses you're insuring is very low. Um, but you do see a decent amount of, you know, medical or surgical claims where horses have all the things, you know, anything from a colic to a pasture accident to a lameness to EPM to ulcers, you know, you name it. And so that's typically what we're looking at if people that both want to make sure, God forbid, their horse dies, that they can then at least get back what they've invested in the purchase of the horse and or, you know, additional training and competition and things like that. And then to be protected. Uh, for veterinary costs, if they've got some sort of medical or surgical issue that is, you know, quite expensive, so um, so that's the basic idea. And a lot of people I get uh, just didn't know they could insure their horse, <laughs> um, especially when I started in the industry in the mid '90s. There were so many people that didn't even know the horse in- that horse insurance was a thing, and, and horse people that didn't know that. Um, over the couple last couple of decades, that has changed. It's become, I think, a lot more common for people to insure. Uh, so I'm happy about that. 
Um, but, uh, you know, that's the basic idea. You pay a premium and then you are, you know, looking to have some sort of protection in the event the worst happens and hopefully the worst doesn't. And, but if it does, the last thing you want to be doing in addition to the emotional, you know, stress and the financial stress of dealing with something going wrong with, you know, a member of your family is what it feels like. Um, at least, you know, that you'll have some sort of financial backing for you, you know, to help take care of the, the worst. So that's kind of why we're here. I think that's a super important thing to have. And I have to admit, (laughs) it's, I've always over-focused on the mortality aspect of it, as opposed to thinking through all the potential injuries, which as a horse person doesn't seem to make any sense. Like we're constantly <laughs> saying we should wrap them up in bubbles wrap, but exactly. you know, it, I have always thought like, oh, this is for horses of a certain caliber, certain mm-hmm. worth. Um, and my horse, you know, I got her for 1500 bucks adoption fee, um, mm-hmm. which leads me to my next question. Like, how do you even evaluate how much insurance to get when your horse might have sold at Keeneland for $300,000 and you've adopted it for $1,000 through an aftercare program, but he's still not trained and he's in a barn with maybe all these other horses who are worth maybe two, three times more. How do you even think about how much to get? That's one of the most common questions that we have is how do you value them? And also, is 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 are, are they even insurable um, mm-hmm. because of because of their value? And the simplest answer as far as how much you insure them for is if it's a new adoption, a new purchase, you know, off the track is you're looking at the amount you spent typically to do that. So in the case that you mentioned, if you paid a $1,500 adoption fee, you know, yesterday to adopt that horse, then if you're starting a new policy on the mortality side, that's going to be your insured value. They're not going to insure at that point for more than your investment in that horse. Um, because to insure the horse for more than what you have invested initially puts the insurance company and you to a certain extent, but the insurance company into a bit of a bind because mm-hmm. you're basically, if you have a claim, if that God forbid that horse dies and they've insured it for the amount that it sold it, you know, Keeneland for or, or whatnot, um, then it could be what they consider a moral hazard because mm. um you don't want to put people and, and you know anybody into a position where if the worst happens and they are benefiting significantly more uh financially than what they actually invested in in the thing that they're insuring so that's sort of the basic idea uh, that being said once you have started and you've got the horse insured for you know the amount you in, in uh adopted it for or paid for um then you've got over time like you said you're retraining so whether you've hired hired a trainer that's going to do that, whether you're doing it yourself, um, eventually as that horse develops, you can see about increasing the value. So you are not stuck at that amount you paid for or you know adopted the horse for. You can then over time see about increasing that value as the horse um, you know grows and learns and starts a new career and you know does all the stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. So. Um, can you do anything with like an appraisal? Cause like one of my horses I got for free, like he was just given to me and he was <laughs> yeah, green at the time, you know, but you know, there's certainly there's potential there and I know potential is a little bit subjective too. So mm-hmm. what do you do with a situation like that? Where like, you know, for my purposes, I was like, Oh, this horse is great. He's going to be perfect for the previous owner. He wasn't going to work out, you know? So it was a free horse mm-hmm. in that respect, but like it, you know, it took a little while to bring the potential out in him. So was there anything I could have done like appraisal wise, you know, to have him valued off the bat? There are. So we get questions occasionally about, well, you know, what if I get an appraiser appraisal by an equine 
appraiser. And honestly, for the companies that we have worked with, they generally aren't looking at that. But what they will look at is you explaining to them, okay, I've got this horse for free, you know, a year ago or six months ago or, you know, whatnot. I have since done X, Y, Z, either, you know, you paid a trainer for training or you yourself are a trainer or just that you have the experience in order to do that. The horse is now doing X, Y, Z things. Um, if you have started competing or even clinicking, you know, things like that, where you can say, hey, we clinic with this person or we went to a local show and he did these classes. Um, anything that you can basically use as substantiation for why that horse is now, you know, is, is insurable and worth somewhere in some range of value and underwriters okay. are pretty reasonable about that they understand that you know it, it is to a certain extent subjective yeah um, but if they have enough information where they are comfortable and saying okay you know if you sold this horse tomorrow based on all the things you've done um is this amount reasonable for what is what it's probably worth and uh, so yeah so we see that happen um, quite a lot we do have um the occasional adopted horses we certainly have a lot of um off the track thoroughbreds especially um, you know, a friend of mine has four, I think that she's got now they're all bays. You can't hardly tell them apart and that she's brought <laughs> along, you know, so, um, lots of experience with those scenarios. So underwriters are pretty, pretty cognizant of that as well. Yeah. That's good to know that, you know, you're working with other horse people, you know, because the value of them yeah. can change so quickly. Like somebody can pick the horse up for free from its race trainer. And then two weeks later, you know, put it out on Facebook for $5,000 and you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, yeah. how did this value change so quickly? So <laughs> I know some of that's like, you know, yeah, pricing is in the eye of the beholder somewhat too. So yep. it's like, what a complicated world. We live in. <laughs> exactly. And the good news is too, it, it, you'll, you'll take care of that at the outset of trying to get the policy in place. So when you're submitting the application, there's what's called a value substantiation form where it gives a bunch of different sections based on, you know, it's a competition horse, is it a breeding horse? Um, but where you can put, you know, the information that underwriting can then review. And then as, uh, as your agent, we can come back and say, okay, look, they're not sure. They're not going to go with, they don't feel comfortable with this amount, but they feel this amount. And then you can say, okay, then let's do that. You know, so there's a little bit of a conversation at the beginning to make sure that the company is comfortable at the value that they have approved. And as long as you're good with that, then that's where you start. And then, like I said, over time, there's always the flex flexibility for that to change. Yeah, because that's like a tricky situation, right? Like, to yeah. me, this horse is worth $6 million. But it's like, like all the, the eyes of the beholder. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. exactly. I'm like, he's priceless, but, you know, realistically, think, he's not. <laughs> yes, and people can get a little bit, um, uh, you, you know, you don't want to insult people by right. saying, I'm sure he's lovely, you know, but unfortunately, he's unproved. You know, like, you're trying to have that conversation yeah, without... on paper, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, without insulting them <laughs> that, that they're you know, adorable, you know, talented, you know, endless potential horse is not quite yet from the insurance company standpoint, uh, going to get oh, insured at that amount. So yeah, it's a little delicate. Yeah, what a tactful job. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's not a job for me. I am not tactful at all. I'd be like, nah, sorry. <laughs> no. And then you're trying to say, no, we don't feel that way. It's not us. It's the underwriters. We don't make those decisions. It's <laughs> Pass the buck to the it's underwriters. It's those darn underwriters. They just won't get, you know, yeah. So those, they just don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're so strict. So yes, that does occasionally come up uh, in conversation. All right. I have another question too, if I may, Joy. Sure. Um, absolutely. I have listeners are familiar at this point with my um, odd array of animals that I have. So, and I, I would be curious now, like if, if I could insure them 
after the fact of all these things. So I have my main horse has uh, cutaneous lymphoma, which is in remission, I think, hopefully, knock some wood wow. again. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, like he's also he's going to be 15 next year, too, which is getting up there. And then our, my husband's main horse has recurrent uveitis. So he's like already vision impaired. Mm-hmm. Um, so are like our horses like that insurable? Like, and you know, I would imagine the underwriters take that into consideration. Like we're not going to insure his eyes at this point. <laughs> yeah. So you, it's almost inevitable that a horse that is of a certain age or has done a certain job previously is going to come with some baggage for lack of right. better word <laughs> or jewelry, which I like how, how that, I like that term, some jewelry. And mm-hmm. um, so when you complete the paperwork, uh, that all needs to be disclosed. Number one, pre-existing conditions aren't covered. So uh, just across the board for mortality coverage for medical, surgical, uh, those are just considered um, not covered. Be- and so, but you want to disclose all of those so underwriting can then take all that in consideration. And first of all, say whether or not they'll take on the risk to begin with. And if they will, what exclusions that they would apply, you know, to the policy in writing to, to make sure that everybody's clear on, okay, you know, the uveitis is not covered or that type of thing. So right. um, the horse with the uveitis, I, I would, I would think depending on the nature of it, depending on, you know, the, uh, how advanced it is and that sort of thing, they would potentially consider with an exclusion. Um, the lymphoma gets a little bit more tricky because one, like you said, the horse is in remission, but are we sure? And secondly, yeah, that's a know. little <laughs> bit more of a potentially, I think, systemic concern, you right. know, it, could it affect any more, any other organ systems, you know, things like that. So, um, some of that would come down to information from your vet, as far as diagnosis and treatment and prognosis, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then underwriting would determine whether, again, you know, they'd be comfortable taking on the risk. Um, but if they were, for sure, their exclusions would apply. They would just need to, f- to determine in, in their minds, is this even something that we can exclude properly? Because, okay, so, for example, it's not technically the lymphoma itself that causes the problem, of, you know, at some point. But it's almost like a, it's almost a sort of side effect or, you know, it's sort of adjacent. It's lymphoma adjacent, um, you know, a, a health problem down the line. And so they, you know, whether or not they're comfortable, you know, if those sorts of things happen. So, um, yeah, but we see that all of the time. I mean, horse, especially racehorses. I mean, you're seeing, you know, the 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 jewelry on the radiographs and you're, you know, seeing, um, you know, those sorts of things or histories, you know, horses that have histories of. Um, you know, Lyme disease or, um, you know, ulcers or colic, especially in your, that is the most frequent mm-hmm. uh, pre-existing sort of situation we see. And also to keep in mind, not everything will potentially be excluded outright. So you could have a horse that had, for example, colic two years ago, and it was a medical colic. It was treated. Horse has been fine. Didn't have a previous history. Hasn't had any issues since, you know, no surgery, just sort of, you know, horses colic sometimes. Um, underwriters typically will be like, okay, we're good with that. That's, you know, we don't need to exclude the call, you know, for colic, that horse is just a horse who just had, you know, um, a sort of one, one off situation, but you could also have a horse that has had multiple, you know, medical colics or that's had a surgery. Um, and they'll look at it potentially a little differently, especially looking at how recent certain things have happened, how serious they were for colic, especially if there was surgery and there was a resection, you're almost going to have a lifetime. Uh, colic exclusion with any horse that's had a, a resection mm-hmm. um but you know so those are sort of a lot of the common uh situations that you know and horses that have had 
various lamenesses, you know, soft tissue injuries, things like that. You know, again, what degree, how long, you know, what, was it just a little tweak, you know, and they were, you know, rehabbed for a couple months and they've been back in work, for, you know, in full work for a year and a half. Nobody's really potentially going to be concerned about that. Um, but something that's more recent, something that was more serious, um, they're, they're going to potentially consider it, but, you know, specifically exclude for certain things. The other thing that we often have people asking is, or you see, you know, when people are commenting about insurance online, you know, social media, um, well, you know, if anything happens, they're just going to exclude the whole leg. That's unusual when it comes to lamenesses. Typically, they will exclude for the actual problem. So if you had a deep deep digital flexor tendon, you know, injury um, on the right front, you know, then you're probably that's going to be your exclusion. Um, it's not going to be we won't cover anything that ever happens again in that right front leg. Again, it depends on the company, it depends on the underwriter, it depends on the specifics of the situation. But they do typically try to be reasonable, you know, and exclude for what is a reasonable uh, wording so that you still have decent coverage going forward. And that's also something that that confuses people as well, is that horse insurance policies are written on a 12-month basis. They are a 12-month mm-hmm. term policy. So mm-hmm. you insure for a year, you pay a premium. When that policy is due to expire, you're typically going to get a renewal notice from your agent. They are going to tell you, first of all, if renewal is possible, typically it is, um, you then complete a renewal application, which is much much more simple than completing the initial application to insure the horse. And then that goes to underwriting. If the horse has had health issues in that past year, they will now typically be considered pre-existing to the next year's policy. So in that, I think there's a better understanding of that overall in the horse industry across the board, but that still can be surprising to people because with human insurance, you know, with our human health insurance, mm-hmm. thankfully, um, that's not the case. You know, if you develop a health issue, um, you're typically just going to be covered under your health insurance for as long as, you know, that issue continues. But with horses, you kind of have the situation where you're covered, you know, as long as it wasn't pre-existing to, to the policy, the, new, the existing policy, you're going to have coverage for that policy term. But you're typically, depending again on the circumstances and what it was, potentially not going to have coverage for going forward. And even in those situations, depending on what it is, Maybe you'll have an exclusion for the the following year, but there's no recurrence. Horse has been fine. You know, it's not something that's chronic. Then they might consider on the following renewal not excluding for it. You know what I mean? So there's always some give and, and take in those situations. Um, and those are a lot of the conversations we have with clients, trying to work through that with them and with our underwriters to make sure everybody's on the same page and, uh, you know, make sure that we can try to be as reasonable for them as possible. That's it's nice that it's like individual, you know. Yeah, yes, that's what I was just going to say. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, we're I'm really lucky the people that, you know, we have working, you know, in the office, on the phone, emailing, you know, dealing with clients one on one are all horse people and they can understand, you know, all the terminology. They can look at the, you know, the invoices from vets and past claims and they can look at vet reports and pre-purchase exams and, you know, all of that and have an intelligent conversation with our clients, with our underwriters, you know, with the claims adjusters, if there's a claim situation going on. And that counts for a lot because if they have a really good understanding of what they're looking at, then they can hopefully be a good advocate, you know, for our clients when dealing with underwriting too. That's super interesting. Like, I feel like I've had so many of my questions answered. I'm like, oh, I have a lot more confidence looking at insurance now. That's awesome. Um, But my next question would be around aging too. So Mm -hmm. 
a lot of the thoroughbreds coming off are quite young, but with the Retired Racehorse Project really promoting retraining broodmares who are done with really their second careers going into their third, or Mm -hmm. um, with standard breds, they typically retire later in their teens. Is there anything that, you know, listeners should know about if they are insuring a 15, 16, 17-year-old horse? Yes. So that also common question, um, when horses start aging, at what point are they still insurable? At what point, you know, do coverages change availability, that sort of thing. Typically, and this is, we work with, we work consistently with four or five different insurance companies, which is great because it gives us the ability to place business with, because all companies sort of have different appetites for certain things. Mm -hmm. And um, especially with the medical coverage, you're going to see restrictions by value, whether or not they'll offer major medical surgical, you're going to see some of them are restricting certain uses, you know, things like that. So um, we are lucky that we have good relationships with the multiple companies to uh, figure those things out. But across the board, they all have some limitations on age or some, you know, increases in rates and that sort of thing. Typically, rates stay the same as far, and by rate, I mean, say you're going to insure, say, just to make a round number, um, you're, you're going to insure the horse for $10,000. Um, then rates are a percentage of the insured value is how you come up with your annual premium for your mortality coverage. So say it's a a dressage horse and it's 14 years old. Typically you're about a 3% rate. So your mortality premium is going to be about $300 for the year. Now, as the horse ages to 15 to 16 to 17, those rates go up slightly for the mortality coverage. So now instead of 3%, it's 4.5% or you know, the horse is now 17 and it's 7%. You know what I mean? Because statistically speaking, from an from an actuarial standpoint, the chances of the horse dying increase as the horse gets older, um, just as it does with humans. So the rates will increase. Some companies with for new business are more conservative in taking on an older horse. So it's one thing if they've insured the horse since it was 14 and then they just keep offering renewal as time goes by because they've had that horse insured for you know a couple of years prior to the age situation. It's another thing for someone to come to them out of you know out of the blue, so to speak, with seventeen year old or an eighteen year old. But we mm-hmm. do actually have one company specifically, possibly two, that are pretty amenable to that. So you know you bring them a sixteen to seventeen and eighteen year old as new business, and they will typically, as long as the horse otherwise you know meets underwriting requirements will accept them. So, um, and typically from an aging out standpoint for full mortality and potentially medical surgical types of coverages, the oldest that any of the companies we work with is 20, um, sometimes a little younger, depending on the company. And then at that point, they will typically only offer what's called a specified perils or a limited perils coverage, which is basically life insurance in the event the horse dies from a very narrow, specifically uh, worded list of things, which are sort of mostly acts of God, like, you know, fire, flood, you know, uh, that kind of, those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, so they, we do have lots of options because again, we work with different companies. So if you bring us a new, you know, a new risk that's 16, 17, 18 years old, we potentially, you know, have a, have a place for that. That's so helpful. Honestly, it, it, this adds so much clarity because I feel like insurance is one of those conversations we just don't really have in the horse world. I think there is a little bit of a stigma that your horse has to be of certain value or really, competing like at a certain rich or something. Yeah. yeah. Or like at a <laughs> competing at a certain level to make it quote unquote worth it. But I really loved your point of 
having your horse insured really protects you from having to be in a really painful space when something does mm-hmm. go wrong. It gives you that comfort at the end of the day. So now I need to look closer about getting insurance for my own horse. It's honestly, I mean, I think that I myself, I have not owned a horse of my own for a while, but you know, I absolutely would. And I think one of the one of the misconceptions about equine insurance is that it's so restrictive that they won't cover for anything. All they try to do is get out of claims. You know, you hear it and I get it. You know, some people, you know, occasionally do There's have probably firms stuff. out there who do do that, but <laughs> we're not talking to those firms. <laughs> no, and, and I'm not working with those because why would I want to? You know, I, mean, I don't, my, my job is to get the best policy that I can for my clients. And why in the world would I want to be on the phone fighting with the claims adjusters and having unhappy clients because of issues with claims. That is just not what I want to do all day. And I I can absolutely say that all of the companies that I worked with over the past, I don't know, 25 years, which makes me feel really old, um, have been very good about holding to the contract. If it's covered, it's covered. There are always going to be gray areas. You know what I mean? There's sometimes where, you know, is it, it was it pre-existing or was it disclosed or, you know, things like that. But honestly, and we insure thousands of people, you know, and horses, obviously they're horses, not the people, um, over the course of a year. And it is so unusual for us to get into a situation where they are, are, you know, unhappy with a claim and they're calling us, you know, to basically get, you know, get involved on on their behalf. And uh, because, again, I don't want to spend my time doing that and I don't want people to be stressed out in that way. Uh, So we really do, you know, insurance companies really do try to do the right thing. I can absolutely say that 100%. So that is one of the the really common misconceptions. The other is, like I said, that something goes wrong and they're just not going to insure the horse anymore or they're going to have these huge blanket exclusions, things like that. Again, they are typically pretty reasonable on on that if if there is an issue and renewals and and that much going forward. The other misconception is that it's really expensive. And obviously, the more your horse is worth the more your mortality premium is going to be because it's just a percentage of it. So like I said, for that dressage horse at $10,000, it's $300 a year to 3% rate, but that's going to double $20,000. It's just, you know, exponentially going to go up because it's just purely a percentage of the insured value. But what we do have sometimes is clients who don't necessarily want to spend a huge amount of money on the mortality premium. So maybe their horse is worth, you know, $30,000, but they're less concerned about a mortality claim than they are on a colic surgery that costs them twenty, you know, twelve thousand dollars or whatnot. So they'll insure the horse for a lesser mortality value, so they're keeping their mortality premium down, but get the medical surgical coverage and pay that premium, so they have coverage there. Sort of, you know, hedging their bets one way or the other. Um, so that's the other question. That's the other sort of misconception that people have is that well, I just can't afford it. And you know, you would be surprised how reasonable it can be. Obviously, the higher limits you have, the more premium you pay. So you're always kind of doing that math in your head. I just did that insuring my dog where I was thinking, okay, so, you know, if I'm going to pay this amount of premium for the, you know, medical coverage and there's this amount of a deductible and there's this amount of coinsurance, you know, how, how, where does, where's the, the sweet spot, you know, of how much I want to pay on premium and how much coverage I want to have in the event of a, you know, worst case scenario sort of uh, situation. So, um, and it's a lot easier than people think too. I think people are concerned that, there's going to be this long drawn out application process and it's really long and you have to slog through all the stuff. And over time, insurance companies have made it so much easier to insure horses 
the paperwork is much simpler. They typically don't ask for a vet certificate um, unless there's, you know, certain health history or age, um, you know, so they really have made it more client friendly over time. Most of it can be done electronically, you know, completed, you know, an app- PDF application. You don't ever have to even, you know, pick up a pen and, um, you know, payment plans are, there's all sorts of ty- types of payment plans. So you don't have to pay, you know, even if you've got a $500 premium, you'd be surprised. A lot of companies will have a payment plan for that. So you can spread out the premium, you know, that way as well. So, um, yeah, I, I absolutely would not have a horse and not insure it. I just think that it is, uh, and also partly because I see all the claims that come through. I see all the claim reports and you want to get paranoid? Try looking oh, no. at all the things. That <laughs> la, 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 I'm not listening. Stop. No. <laughs> oh, seriously. <laughs> it will keep you up at night. I mean, you're like, wow, how did that even happen? You know, and, um, you know, I, then you'll see the horses turned out in a field that has old farm equipment and all these crazy pokey, you know, and potentially dangerous things. That horse never gets hurt. Then you have the horse that's practically, you know, it's pristine and there's nothing in that paddock and the fencing is perfect and everything is great. And then it's got this, you know, eye injury that something stabbed it in the eye. And you're like, how does that happen? Everything in there or even in, in its stall. Like you, we all know it's amazing what they can do to themselves. And, um, so yeah, it does it does make you paranoid seeing all the the claims that come through for all of the uh, things that they can do to themselves and just all the common things that happen. It's amazing. I actually looked at our actuarial data data years ago, very detailed data from one of the companies that we worked with, and it didn't really matter whether it was a five thousand dollar horse or a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar horse that was you know literally an Olympic hopeful or you know potentially an Olympic horse that across the board, you would see the same types of claims. So, you know, you can take the best care of the horse. The horse can be in the best training at the best facility and stuff can still just go wrong. And um, so, and that's what we're here for too. And I think like you said, there's that stigma of, well, how much is my horse really worth? And they're not going to insure it because, you know, it's, I just got it for $1,500 off the track or that sort of th- scenario. And they, we do have markets for that. It has gotten more difficult over time to insure um, lower dollar horses. But we do have two markets, especially that are still, you know, in the mix of it and still willing to do it. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm here as a as an agent, as a company to insure every horse regardless. So that fifteen hundred dollar horse is important to me as the horse that's going to the Olympics. But, you know, there's just that's why we're here is to take care of our clients and take care of their horses. Well, I, I personally, as a horse owner, really appreciate that reassurance because <laughs> insurance is just a mystery. It really is. And unless you're involved in it every day, I feel like it can just be overwhelming. So I so appreciate your time today, Amy. I know Kristen had her questions answered too, and we really hope listeners appreciate this. If listeners want to reach out to learn more about Broadstone Equine and the insurance services you offer, what's the best way to do that? Uh, our website can be a great resource for information for questions because those frequently asked questions. I we have a blog that that goes into detail on things like value, you know, how to complete an application. Um, so the website can be uh, very helpful for people who like to get the nitty gritty detail. Um, and also, you can get a quote from the website. There is a, a page where you can just put in the horse information, and then um, our agents will look through it and email a quote. So if you're not the person who wants to get on the phone, um, which a lot of people <laughs> hate phones these days. Um, so all of that can be done through the website or give our office a call and, you know, people are there every day, Monday through Friday and, uh, and happy to talk and happy to help. Website address is broadstoneequine.com. So, um, 
that's the best way to do it. Perfect. And we'll have that in our show notes too. Thanks again, Amy. We really appreciate this. My pleasure. You take care. Train with top hunter, jumper, and eventing professionals anytime, anywhere with Practical Horsemen On Demand. Your membership gives you access to hundreds of how-to training videos taught by top-level hunter, jumper, equitation, and eventing pros, exclusive interviews and lectures, slow-motion demonstrations, insider access to private clinics and lessons, and step-by-step tutorials. New content is always being rolled out, so there are always new videos available on the topics important to you. Join now for just $24.99 a month and take your training to the next level with Practical Horsemen On Demand. So, Kristen, I'm getting ready to do my holiday shopping, and when we were at the Thoroughbred Makeover, Zach found a specific men's jacket at the RRP store. And I was like, it is super nice, and then I didn't pack it or buy it at the time because I was afraid to pack it in my car that was already stuffed full of things. <laughs> but I would love to look at it as a Christmas gift. Are you guys running any specials? Oh, heck yeah, we are. Yeah, actually, our holiday sale is on right now. Um, and it's only going to run through December 10th. So if you guys are hearing this on the 25th, you've got a couple weeks left to get all of your RRP OTTB gear goodies. If you use code JINGLE, J-I-N-G-L-E, at checkout, you will take 20% off literally everything in the store. So like all the gear, all the stuff for your horse, all the clothes, the belts, the oh, so I can shop for myself. Oh yeah, you can go nuts. Like everything. We have dog bandanas, like there's everything you could possibly want um with that cool OTTB logo on it. So Jingle gets you 20% off store wide. It also gets you an extra 25% off stuff that's already on sale. So that's a total of 45% off sale items. And then all orders over $100 also get a free RRP tote. So no code needed for that one. Just finish your order, use the code JINGLE to score your savings, and then you'll get a free tote. So get on that order by December 10th for holiday delivery. So that's at therrp.org slash shop. Even under the best circumstances, travel is stressful for horses. We've all been there, stuck on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. You can make the journey knowing that U.S. Rider is there for you. Get peace of mind on the road with U.S. Riders nationwide 24-7 roadside assistance coverage for both you and your horse. Join today at usrider.org. Well, it is that time of the show where we bring on new vocations, and we have Leandra Cooper joining us back from the thoroughbred side of things. Welcome back, Leandra. Well, great to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always fun having you because I feel like we learn, well, we learn so much when Winnie comes on too. Like you both are such a wealth of knowledge. So we feel very privileged to have you as consistent guests on the show. Um, and speaking of, I do have a training question for you. We're getting into winter. We're getting into a place where horses a little more feisty, especially if they have a nice fresh clip, all that good <laughs> stuff. And some things I've noticed with some of our thoroughbreds is they almost like to play with their bits or get a little fussy in the head where they are doing what some people think is cute on TikTok, where they bob their head up and down. But it's not always so cute for us as riders when you're in the saddle. Do you have some tips and tricks on helping your horse feel more comfortable or things we should look out for as horse owners when they are doing that? Absolutely. So bobbing their head in work can come from a number of different things. Sometimes it's just a product of them messing around with the contact. So it could be the 
getting used to being on the bit like we want them to because say in the case of an off the track thoroughbred who has learned to lean on the bit and then in his new job and new transition he's being taught to come off of the bit or go kind of selectively on in the context that we want for different disciplines that that can be something that can cause them different feelings in different places as they're getting new muscles hopefully and I'll think of it sometimes like doing a new exercise at the gym you know sometimes you need to just do a couple reps and then take a break and then a couple more reps so it's sort of like applying in the knot sometimes it's evasive and that can at times be from discomfort in which case I always recommend well I always recommend just giving the horse benefit of the doubt that there could be something really causing that so I would check their teeth make sure that there isn't that they're overdue for that there's something that they're trying to avoid being on the contact because one of the ways that they do that is either kind of be a train in your hand where they're just diving into it and pushing through it, or they can be above the bit. And when they're above the bit, they are, tend to be in your face. And that's, uh, that's no fun either. I've definitely had a, a nose smacked or two in my time from that. And in those cases, it's really important to get to the root of whatever is causing the discomfort. It can also be advisable to have a bodywork professional or a chiropractor look at your horse. It's very common that the horses that we see are needing adjustments through their poles or could be carrying a lot of stress around the pole in their muscling. So those sort of things can make them uncomfortable and you might see the bobbing as a result of that. And then as far as the training side of things go, I like to start, as I'm sure I've mentioned a million times before, I like to start on the ground and make sure that they understand contact with just whether it's a rope halter or a plain type uh, like leather halter and a lead rope. That when you're asking them to give, that they understand that ask and that there is a response there, that they are making a connection and that they, they know what to do. And then so if you're asking them to stop and back up, that that's something that you're able to do even from the ground, because if they can't do it from the ground, they're likely going to have a hard time with it under saddle. And Yes, having a bit can make it harsher of an ask, but we don't really want to rely on that. We'd like to be able to teach them the basics, the fundamentals, just from the ground and make sure that that understanding is really there. So there's not the miscommunication and just a response to the, the pressure or pain from um, the, the, the sharper pressure applied from a bit. Um, when you have that, then it becomes a lot easier if you're having a horse who is has their head up in the air to then work on engaging their hind end pushing them up into your hand and getting those moments of give that then you can give to and they understand that and they'll start dropping down there so there's a lot that you can do once you've already gone through the whole troubleshooting process where you can make sure that you're addressing the things that could be correctable in um you know very quick and easy sort of ways. And then if you need to work on the training side of things, then 
being able to just make sure that they understand the give to pressure is a really good place to start because then you can control the ask a little bit more of when you're asking them then to engage and drop down into the bit or into your hand. Would you recommend using like a side rein or maybe like long lining for a horse like that? Yeah, I think that's a really good place. If you're comfortable using those tools, that that is a a really good tactic. Um, I always caution people from trying to use mechanics if, if they don't know how to use them properly. Right. Um, so, and, and that also goes for horses who can be totally green to side rays or something like that. Like you, you want to really make sure that you have the right equipment and you know how to use it because in the wrong hands, you can get a horse who tries to evade, say, um, if you're putting them in a lunging system, but you're using side reins that don't have proper give or that have too much slack um, or the horse is just really anxious that I've seen horses flip over from that as well. So you really have to take it on a case by case basis, you know, can't hurt to teach your horse something as simple as learning how to respond to pressure and back up when you ask them to. And there you, you can go into great depth of tools and, things that can be helpful on top of that once you get that as well. But certainly if you know how to use sirens, if you know how to properly fit and use them, um, and then long lining, same goes for that. If you know how to do it properly, I think it's a really excellent tool. I love that. I think there's a lot of helpful tips in there just to get people started and feel a little bit more confident. If, you know, their horse does start to act a little peculiar and of course, like make sure and maybe have your equine dentist or vet out, check your bits, all your tacks good to go before bringing out all the fancy tools, definitely a helpful thing to do. Um, But if everything looks good and they're just kind of learning how to balance themselves or as you said, Leander, they just are learning to play, how to self-carry all those good things, you know, it's a nice place to like slow down as Chris and I talked about earlier um, in the episode, winter is a great time to slow down and just do those smaller sessions with lots of breaks where they can learn everything you're trying to teach them and have bite-sized pieces to digest on. So love that. Love those tips. Okay. Well, let's introduce our adoptable horse of the week. Probably the most exciting part of the episode. Tell us who we are looking at today. We are looking at unnamed genuine class 2020, who we call Gen C. He is a 2020 <laughs> gelding, and he's already a giant moose of a horse at 16.3 hands. And something that's really impressive about him is while we will see plenty of horses who are big at this age, what we tend to see is that they don't really know how to balance or carry themselves productively a lot of time like they're just big and goofy and don't quite know how to put themselves together where their feet are and something that's really impressive about gen c is that he has a pretty good balance he knows where his body parts are he knows how to use them he's shown us just an amazing amount of aptitude for lots of different disciplines that you might want to go into because he's brave and he can handle new challenges and new obstacles. Um, He has shown 
a really nice, flowy, comfortable gates. Um, he's kind, he's quiet. He's just really an all around package. So it still amazes me that he didn't just fly right out the barn as soon as we had him up. Um, and he really has only gotten better and better. So on his profile on our website at horseadoption.com, you'll see this really cute little video where he had learned very quickly where the treats were kept. So when he was walking out to turn out, he would stop at the door to the little office room over at a rehab barn when he was spending some, getting some downtime over there. He would just stop there and just without like the lead ropes flung over his neck. So he's not being led. Nobody's telling him to stop, but he just walks right up as though it's just his little treat drive through. And he had learned (laughs) where they were. So he he was a quick favorite for everybody. He's just very sweet and entertaining and just a big dog kind of personality. As far as the future, there's really no telling what he's going to be able to do. He had had some time off just to grow a better base of foot and had come to us with a history of them just kind of having issues um, getting him comfortable. But our farrier really quickly got him on a program that works for him. And now he just wears very basic shoes. Um, So he's gone from kind of like the, you know, it just sounds like they had a hard time getting, putting a finger on what exactly wasn't working for him when they had him on the trajectory for the track. And so now we have this great fortune of having a horse who doesn't seem to have any issues and has this great brain and um, big, beautiful body. So I think there's a lot ahead of him in his future. Yeah. But I was going to say, it was like, this is a horse. Definitely. You guys, if you're listening to this and you're going to head to the website, you've got to watch the video of this horse go. Like mm-hmm. he's very he's cute. So soft. The, yeah. And the pictures he's cute. You know, he just looks like a big sweet horse, but in the video I'm yeah. like, Oh, this is like a warm blood looking, like yes. this is what everyone wants, right? Everyone yeah. wants like a warm blood looking horse with big movement. Yeah. That's either not raced or very lightly raced. Like this I is the horse know. y'all. <laughs> Yeah. Get on it. And right now it's like he doesn't even try. You know, it's like we we've only done such a very topical layer of training for him and he is so fun and so cool and I'm like if you're this cool already, he's going to develop into such a nice horse. Yeah, the balance on him is amazing. Like he just he's like, awesome. "Oh, I got it." Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you guys get the super application in and take this one home and then tell us all about it because he's very cute. Yes, he like low key fits the <laughs> makeover wish list that I was gonna send you, Leandra. I uh, know, but oh, he's not eligible. I'm no, sorry. That's okay. But you know what he is eligible for to make someone very happy this holiday season. And, and we love that. While we're recording this, we're not, not quite in that. Uh, our our time range yet, but I believe by the time that this goes out, we will officially be in our big end of year adoption fee mm-hmm. special, mm-hmm. in which fifty percent will be just dropping off our adoption fees. So definitely make sure that you're getting an application in as soon as you're hearing this, if you haven't already, because. Horses like Genuine Class, well, actually, all of them, all of them will be 50% off for the rest of the year. Absolutely. They fly out. So this guy will be $12.50, which is basically free. So basically Basically free. free. Uh, I love it, Leandra. Hook your trailers up. 
Get them ready. Make sure everything's set. Have your maintenance done. It's it's holiday time, y'all. You need to be prepared to go get your horses. That's right. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Leander. We always appreciate you coming on. Check out horseadoption.com to go find your perfect forever friend. Our potentially your makeover hopeful. Both are there. We can't wait to hear all about it when you do find them. And Leandra, until next time, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Joy, we had a super fun episode today, and I cannot believe that we just keep on... Well, I can believe, because the world of thoroughbreds is so vast and so varied, and there's so much going into it. I don't think we'll ever have a shortage of guests. So as long as you listeners keep on listening, keep subscribing, keep reviewing, keep leaving us comments on social media and letting us know what you would like to hear from next, we will keep on going with Retired Racehorse Radio. You can find our show notes and links to today's guests on the website at horseradionetwork.com. Like us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Retired Racehorse Radio. Follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. You can find me on Instagram at The Horseback Writer and on Twitter at Kristen Kobach. My email is kbentley at therp.org. You can find me on Instagram at MisfitMare and my email is joy at horseradionetwork.com. Thank you so much to our sponsors, Kentucky Performance Products and Cashel Company, and to our partners, New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program and the Retired Racehorse Project. Don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network, part of Equine Network at horseradionetwork.com. Remember to set your goals high and love to learn from every ride. And always add more leg. Bye, guys. Bye.